You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. I hope you're doing well. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake, and uh, I'm just glad that you've joined us today. Um, all right, I'm going to kick us off with a little bit of a story, all right? Uh, this is, this is going to be like the most Aggie story that you've ever heard, per- perhaps, because uh, as you know, most of y'all know I went to Texas A&M, and I appreciate y'all's kindness and grace for putting up with me. But um, one, uh, one day, my junior year at A&M, I walk into my apartment, and I find a note on the kitchen table, written by my brother, Ben, who uh, some of y'all know. And uh, Ben was one of my roommates. I had a couple of roommates that year. And uh, the note just says, and I quote, goat in bathroom, will explain later. That's all. Now, even in College Station, that is unusual, all right? So I, I do what anyone would do in that situation. I uh, turn around and walk to our one and only bathroom, all right? So it's like, to our bathroom, I open up the door, sure enough, full-size goat right there. Around the goat is a trash can that's knocked over and is now eating all the trash that's on the ground, and then toilet paper rolls, got a big bite out of it, along with a head of lettuce and a couple of carrots that my brother has just like, I guess, thrown in there for his new goat friend. And so I shut the door, and I'm just like, okay, what in the world? And so then I just wait for hours for my brother to come home so that he can explain the goat in bathroom. And he does his explanation uh, not, not satisfying, this said uh, a friend of his found the goat and asked him if he could keep the goat for the day. And my brother, seeing no, pro- no problem with keeping a goat in our apartment bathroom, said, sure. And so uh, he did keep the goat there for the day. And then later that night, uh, my brother and this friend went and drove this goat over to a house where some of their lady friends lived and they were hosting a women's, college women's Bible study going on at that night. And they unannounced opened up the front door of that house and they shoved the goat in and they closed the door and they sped away. <laughs> These are the kind of pranks that people play in College Station. I told you it was a very aggy story. Um, now, I just want you to know, I don't condone any of that story. But I did think it was hilarious. <laughs> and I, uh, I, but I also felt really sorry for the goat, right? I mean, the poor goat just keeps finding itself in places it's not supposed to be. Now, I tell you that story because one, it's funny. And two, uh, Caroline told me I, I needed to tell that story today. And so there you go for Caroline. And also uh, because today's sermon uh, is on a passage where Jesus finds some animals where they're not supposed to be. See that connection? But here's the thing. He doesn't think it's funny. He actually gets angry about it. Let me read the passage. If you will, uh, if you're able, why don't you stand for the reading of God's word? And uh, we're going to read it from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. It says, 
When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And so he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, and he scattered the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. You can take a seat. We're currently in a teaching series uh, through the uh, beginning of Gospel of John. And what we're doing is we're looking at all these stories of people encountering Jesus. And we're doing that because each encounter reveals something significant about Jesus. So through these encounters, we can learn a lot about Jesus, about who he is, about what he cares about, about what he came to do. And so it just as a quick review, uh, in John 1, uh, we saw that uh, as we kicked off the series, uh, Justin teaching on John the Baptist and his encounter with Jesus. And in that encounter, we, we learned that when John saw Jesus, what did he say? He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that this is who Jesus is. And John was bearing witness of on uh, who Jesus is. And then later in John chapter one, there's Jesus' encounter with Nathaniel. And remember what we learned from that encounter? That Jesus knows us, that he really knows you on an individual level, and he likes who he created you to be. And he actually has come to make the way for you to be restored fully into the image of God. Then we went to John chapter two, Matt teaching last week on the wedding in Cana and Jesus' encounter with, with the people there. And do you remember what the big takeaway from that was about what we learned from Jesus? We learned that Jesus came to cover shame and graciously give us abundant joy, even a great cost to himself. See, the, these Each of these stories helps us see a different dimension of Jesus. I hope you're getting a better and more accurate and beautiful picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And today's passage, friends, gives us another dimension of Jesus. One that we haven't seen yet, but is fleshed out more through this encounter than in in any of the others so far. And this uh, dimension of Jesus, it, it's, it's, it, it, it will hit you a little differently. But it's important for us to see that this is definitely an aspect of who Jesus is 
And I want to help you see why it's something we should be so thankful for as we continue through this message. All right, so if you will, uh, here's where we're going to go. We're going to look at how this Jesus encounter with the temple merchants helps us know who Jesus is, helps us know Jesus better. For It reveals three things about Jesus. And the first thing that it reveals is what Jesus is passionate about. What Jesus is passionate about. All right. So, uh, you know, if you were following along when I was reading, you see, what was Jesus passionate about? What got him riled up? What, what was he uh, zealous about? It's right there in verse 16, right? Zeal for your house will consume me. See, Jesus is passionate about, he's zealous about his father's house. Now, uh, you probably know this, but his father's house, that was Jesus's way uh, of referring to the temple. The temple, and then the, the temple, it was a, a huge deal in scripture and in Jewish life. Like the, the, the temple in scripture is revealed to be the, the, the place, described to be as a place where God's space and humanity's space overlapped. It's, it's like the hot spot where heaven and earth met. For it was the place on earth where God's Shekinah glory uniquely dwelt, where the creator God had chosen to take up his residence among his people, which is why Jesus called it his father's house. And that's also why he was so zealous about what went on there. But uh, Jesus was not alone in holding the temple into such high regard. If you were to ask any ancient Israelite what the uh, most important place on earth was, you would get a clear and consistent answer, the temple in Jerusalem. For this was the uh, sacred place where Israel's priestly representatives would enter into God's presence on their behalf and express thanks and confession and praise. And so Jews and God-fearing Gentiles would pilgrimage there from all over the place so they could go and meet with God, especially during the week of Passover, which is the time that we're told Jesus had come to Jerusalem and come specifically to the temple. See, uh, on Passover that week, uh, annually about uh, 300 thousand people, it's estimated, would travel to Jerusalem, which uh, just to like, give you an idea here, uh, Jerusalem at this time in the first century was, was um, believed to have a, be about 80,000 people in population. So 80,000, but 300,000 would come and travel there annually for the week of Passover. So the, as you can imagine, the city is packed. The place is completely packed. And they're all there to celebrate Passover and to come to the temple to offer sacrifice, cattle, sheep, or doves in order to be forgiven and made right with God. Now, because uh, so many people were traveling to Jerusalem from outside uh, and even from foreign nations to make it to make uh, the sac to make uh, this whole thing possible for them to be able to come foreigners to come and enter the temple and make a sacrifice, an entire econo economic system had been built up around the temple. And uh, this system cre uh, included uh, money changers who would exchange foreign currency so they could pay the temple tax and enter the temple. 
Uh, and so, and also so they could buy a sacrifice because traveling from far away with an animal to, it's just not real doable, right? Especially if it has to be an unblemished animal, if something were to happen along the way, then that would ruin the uh, sacrifice that you brought. And so you would go there to the temple and actually be able to buy the animal that you were then sacrificed. And so there's this, like, there's, there's big business that formed as a result of what happened at the temple. Now, um, I've, I don't know how familiar you are with this passage. There are, uh, there's many that think that what angered Jesus was the business practices that were going on at the temple. Um, and that very well could be the case. There's, there were uh, later on history notes that there was like, Greed had got into the system and people were charging exorbitant prices and it was unjust and all of that. But what's interesting is that in John 2, that isn't what Jesus calls out. That isn't what the issue is. Because these practices in and of themselves, I mean, greed will mess with anything, right? But the practices in and of themselves of people providing the way to have their currencies changed and to be able to buy a, a sacrificial animal, that was a good service. It wasn't an issue that that stuff was taking place. The issue was where, where it was taking place. See, uh, Jesus enters the temple courts, and he finds that it's happening right here in the temple. Cattle, sheep, and doves. People exchanging money. And so he makes a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, and he scattered the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. Why? because of where they were doing this. Look at what he says in verse 16. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Like he wasn't gonna just release the doves. They would have just fly away. So he tells the dove people, like take those doves and get them out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. That's Jesus's issue. See, there was a, a time when uh, the animal merchants set up their stalls across the Kidron Valley, just outside of the temple. So if you had a picture, you see the temple, there's a valley just on the other side of this little valley there. That's where people would set up their stalls and you could buy the sacrificial animals. But at this point, primarily out of convenience, the merchants and the money changers had moved into the temple court, specifically into the court of the Gentiles or the outer court. So I think there's a picture here you can see. Um, so that big outer court, this is where this is all taking place. Which meant, guys, right, right where some were offering sacrifices and where people were supposed to be worshiping God and praying and seeking him, there's just a giant marketplace I mean, we're talking about thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people there and animals for all of them. I mean, it's just crazy. It's hard to even map, wrap your mind around, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine trying to worship God in the midst of that? Not to make anyone feel bad, but like, oh, we all know how incredibly distracting it is in here when someone's cell phone goes off, Right? 
Peter's <laughs> like, oh, what's going on here? You're completely distracted. No. Can you imagine trying to worship God if this place was filled with oxen and sheep and, and people change, shouting out the different rates for the currency exchange and trying to get you to come and buy their, their sheep from them? And like, I mean, it's like, there's no way that there's any worship that's happening. See, the temple had been turned into a marketplace and the sacrifice had been commercialized into a business transaction. And this business transaction had been orchestrated to make it as convenient as possible. And none of that had anything to do with God or the worship of him. And so instead of undistracted worship and people reflecting on the meaning of the substitutionary sacrifice that they were making, there was the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. And instead of brokenness and petition and holy adoration and praise, there was just noisy commerce. That's what Jesus sees here. And so he is like, guys, this isn't, this isn't okay. Like, come on. Have y'all, y'all should really think about moving these, these animals outside of the temple. No, that, that's, that's not what he did. And that was not his attitude. No, he, he in his zeal, makes a whip. And he drives those animals out of there. And he overturns those tables. 2003, a a movie was made from the Gospel of John, just line by line from the Gospel of John. And in that movie, it, it depicted this scene in this way. I just want you to get a feeling of what this could have been. I don't know if that's a perfect picture of it. But like, you got to see, like this, this is, Jesus is, is, he's zealous. He's passionate. He's riled up. Like what he's seen is not okay. And he moves with, uh, can you say anger? To do something about it. John tells us that when his disciples see him doing this, Psalm 69.9 comes to their mind. See, Psalm 69.9 says, uh, it's, it, King David in there writes, uh, zeal for your house has consumed me. That's what comes to their mind when they watch what Jesus is doing. Zeal for your house has consumed me. See, through this encounter, friends, with the temple merchants, his disciples realize Jesus is passionate about his father's house that he is zealous for his father's house because the purpose of this house, this temple, was to connect with and commune with the owner of the house. That this house is for knowing and loving and treasuring and getting right with the person who dwells there. And so Jesus passionately rids the temple of anything that distracts people from worshiping and focusing on God the Father. See, he was zealous for his father to receive the worship and the glory that he is due. Now, 
as you can imagine, having just seen that scene, uh, what Jesus does here causes people to ask him a question. Like the question being basically, what gives you the right to do that, right? Like, who do you think you are? In fact, specifically, they worded it this way, verse 18. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove the, uh, your authority to do all of this? And that's a fair question, right? Jesus acted like he owns a place, like he has the right to move things around and to move things out. Uh, my daughter, Della, is really good friends with uh, Josh and Kari's daughter, Mackenzie. And, and uh, Mackenzie spent the night last weekend uh, on Saturday night. And then, or, yeah, Saturday night. And then uh, she spent the night again last night on this Saturday night. And so she is, get, you know, she's just like moving in our house, right? And it's great because we love her. She's awesome. And Della and they just have so much fun together. But uh, Mackenzie, uh, this morning, when uh, I was getting ready for the message, I, I walked out uh, and I noticed that some of, some of our uh, furniture had been moved a little bit. And a, and a painting was missing from the wall and some other stuff. And I'm like, I didn't know what, where it went. And, and it turned out that Mackenzie had rearranged the furniture a little bit. And there was a couple of things she didn't like in our house. And she just took it out and she threw it away. And I just like, I was, went up to Mackenzie. It's like, Mackenzie, who do you think you are? Of course, of course I kid. Mackenzie didn't do any of that. She didn't actually move our furniture and, and, and get rid of our stuff. She told, I ran this by her. She said, tell, tell them that I really did do it. <laughs> so there you go, Mackenzie. Um, but my question would be very fair if she were to do that. What are you doing? You, you're a guest at this house. You, you don't, you're not an owner. You can't change your furniture and move things in and out. That's what the Jewish leaders, that's what the Jews are thinking when Jesus is doing this in the temple. They're saying, Jesus, who do you think you are? What gives you the right, the authority to do this? See, it's in this part of the encounter that the authority of Jesus is called out, it's revealed. See, it's, it's interesting that the, that the question that the Jews asked Jesus, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? That's an interesting question because implied in that question is the concession that someone does have the authority to cleanse the temple. Now, I don't want to assume too much here, but it could be that they were aware that one of the distinguishing marks of the promised Messiah was that he would have a passion and a zeal for temple purity. In fact, one of the uh, famous messianic prophecies talks specifically about that. It's found in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Here's what it says. It says, Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord. 
See, the Jewish leaders knew that the Messiah, that when he came, he would have the uh, burning intensity of a refiner's fire for God to be honored and glorified and purely worshiped. And so the leaders knew that the Messiah, the anointed king, would have the authority to drive out the merchants and to refine temple worship. And friends, through this encounter, John is showing us that that is who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah and he has the authority to call people to change, to change their practices and refine and purify the worship of God. The, um, the idea of Jesus' authority, I know, is uh, not, not maybe one of your go-to things to praise God for. Uh, we individualistic, liberty-loving Americans, <laughs> we don't like the idea of authority, do we? You know, someone having the right to tell us what to do and how to live, we kind of bristle at that. <laughs> and, this, and so this aspect of Jesus, it doesn't often elicit praise or excitement in us. But how we feel, friends, let's, let's just hear this. This is, this is blunt, but it's true. How we feel about authority doesn't change who Jesus is. He is the king. He is the one who has the right to call out what is wrong, what is broken, what is impure, and what is unholy. He has the right to call us to change. But in John 2, the people in the temple, they they don't get who Jesus is yet. And so they asked Jesus for a sign to prove his authority. And Jesus, as he often does, responds to their request very cryptically, right? He says, verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy the temple, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And of course, they don't understand what Jesus is talking about. So they say, verse 20, they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Are you going to raise it in three days? Now notice, that's the end of this encounter. That's the end of the the interaction. That's all John tells us. It's like the story of the goat, right? They showed up at the girl's house, and I don't know what happened to it. Like the story ends with the goat. Here, the story ends with Jesus' interaction with the Jews in the temple. We don't know where it goes from here. John doesn't tell us at least. So they just ask for a sign. What's your, by what, you know, prove your authority. He gives them a sign, destroy the temple. I'll raise it again. But they don't take him seriously. And they're, of course, even if they did, they're not going to try to destroy the temple. <laughs> and so they're left kind of at a stalemate. And it just seems like they go different ways. But John does for the benefit of his readers, benefit of you and me, he, he does add a little bit of an explanation. Verse 21. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. But the temple that he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. 
Friends, with this explanation, we get one more insight into Jesus, specifically into what Jesus came to do. What Jesus came to do. See, when, when John explains that the temple Jesus was speaking about was his own body, that was a huge statement. For remember, what is the glory? What was the glory of the temple? The significance of the temple is where heaven meets earth, right? It's where God dwells with mankind. And in the person of Jesus, that's exactly what God was doing. Emmanuel, God with us. See, in Jesus, God had come to dwell with mankind. And Jesus was the new and and better temple, that he was the temple that the temple in Jerusalem had always been meant to point to, that he was the the temple. But Jesus, the true temple, came to be destroyed. For Jesus is not only the true temple, but he was also the ultimate sacrifice. That he, remember what John Baptist said, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That he came to make the way for anyone to be made right with God through faith in his death and his resurrection. See, Jesus at the temple on that day was uh, surrounded by animals that were going to be sacrificed as insufficient substitutes for the sins of the people. The insufficient and that the the, the sacrifice would be given each year, that each year they would have to do it again and again. Now, Jesus, surrounded by all these animals that are about to be sacrificed or were being sacrificed, what in the world do you think that he was thinking about? If you remember from last week's passage, Mary asks him, uh, just tells him, hey, they've run out of wine. And he says, my hour has not yet come. Remember what Matt was teaching us? That hour is a reference to Jesus' death. And Matt said, Jesus was always thinking about his death. It's always before him. Well, how much more so in the temple surrounded by all of these animals that were being sacrificed for the sins of the people? Of course he was thinking about why he had come. Why he, the Lamb of God, had come. He was thinking about his death. How could he not? And so when the people ask him for a sign of his authority, he cryptically points to his death and to his resurrection. Destroy me, and I will rise again in three days. See, that's why he had come. He had come to make people right with God, so that through his death and resurrection, God could truly dwell once and for all with mankind, to even even dwell, hear this, within, within mankind, within each of you, within me, within anyone who trusts in him. See, as a result of faith of what Jesus has done for us, Scripture tells us that the Spirit of God comes to live within us. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when he says, Do you not know that your bodies are, what? What's that word? Temples of the Holy Spirit 
who is in you and whom you have received from God, whom you have received from God as a result of what Jesus, on our behalf, what Jesus, the true temple and the ultimate sacrifice accomplished for us through his death in our place in his resurrection, that we are now through him temples of the Holy Spirit where God comes to dwell with each of us. Now, in light of that, notice how Paul finishes his thought here in 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. See, as a result of what Jesus has done and our faith in him, our bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit, God dwelling within us. And so we are called to honor God with our bodies. Friends, do do you think that Jesus cares about what we do with our bodies? Absolutely, he cares. See, the story of John 2 shows us that he is zealous for, that he is passionate about God's house. And this story shows us that he has the authority to call out impurity and drive out distractions and keep us from honoring God and glorifying God in his temple. See, followers of Jesus, when you read this encounter of Jesus in John chapter 2, I think we have to be left with the question, is Jesus calling out any areas in our lives and your life, where you are dishonoring God. In areas in your body, in your life, where you are uh, distracted from him. Or perhaps a good thing has now become a central thing. And it's moved too much into the center, and it, Jesus is calling it out and saying that needs, to, that needs to get moved to the periphery. Or an area in your life that you just haven't been willing to let go of, that you know is sin, you know is disobedient, is rebellion against God, but you just, ugh. and Jesus is saying, with all the authority of the king of the universe, get that out of here. Friends, if, that, if there is an area in your life or areas in your life, here's my encouragement to you. Listen to him. Listen to him and bow to his authority and let him make those changes in you. For you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I think it's really interesting that John places the story of Jesus at the wedding and Jesus at the temple right next to each other. See, initially, uh, Jesus uh, seems to be so different in each story, right? Think about it, if you were, especially if you are here last week, you can kind of contrast these two together. See, at the wedding, you have Jesus acting quietly. He's hidden. He's acting privately. Here in the cleansing of the temple, he's very public, very dramatic. At the wedding, he was asked to intervene. 
Here, he just, he completely intervenes with no, by no one's request, right? At the wedding, he makes wine. The temple, he makes a whip. At the wedding, he covers shame and he brings abundant joy. At the temple, he uncovers impurity in order to bring God glory. Why do you think John places these two stories together? See, I I believe it's because he wants to show us that what Jesus does in these two stories go hand in hand. See, the wedding shows us that Jesus has come for our good, for our good. He has come to cover our shame and bring us abundant joy. And at the cleansing of the temple, uh, it shows us that Jesus has come for God's glory. And the two, friends, by putting side by side, John's saying they're not mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive. To quote uh, John Piper, his big famous statement, if you know anything about John Piper, you know this one statement, which is, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. See, Jesus doesn't use his authority in our lives to oppress us, but to set us free in the joy of our maker. And so when he calls out our sin, our impurity, or our brokenness in our lives, it's not to shame us. He came to cover our shame. And it's not to keep us from life. No, he came that we would have life and have it to the full, to have abundant life. No, he does it. He calls out the areas that need to change in us for our good and for God's glory. See, the two things go hand in hand. Which means, friends, you can trust him. You can trust his authority in your life. You can listen to him. You can invite him to form you into his image, to let him purify you. See, he does it for your good and for God's glory. And so if there is an area of your life that you've been holding from him, unwilling to obey what he says, friends, in light of who he is and what he's come to do, name it and then repent. Turn from it and turn to him. Follow him. You can do so. You can trust him that he's leading you into life because he is for your good and God's glory. Now, I I know that I've been there. I've had areas where I just like, man, I gotta, like this, this brings me joy. And if I let it go, I'm afraid that I will not have joy. I know what that's like. Can I really trust God? Can I trust Jesus? And he says, get this out of here. It's actually gonna be for my good. If that's where you are, I hope this story helps you see that you can. I hope you, it helps you see what a big deal it is to Jesus and that he has the authority to call you to change even whenever you don't want to. But I know taking that step is hard. Having that trust and that what he says is really for your good is hard. And so to wrap up this morning, 
let's remember the ultimate reason, the number one reason, the ultimate proof why we really can trust him. See, the number one reason why we can trust Jesus is because he didn't, Jesus did not use his authority at our expense, but at his expense. He doesn't use his authority to oppress us. He uses his authority to die for us. Jesus, who being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but humbled himself. He came as a servant, as a man, to die on the cross for our sins. See, this is what we remember when we take communion each Sunday. And so I want to give you a chance to reflect on the ultimate reason why we can trust Jesus' heart for us, that when he points something out in our life that says, that's got to go, we can say, okay, I trust you. And so, yes, I will repent and I will follow you because I know that you're leading me into what's good for me and what's going to honor God. See, when Jesus was cleansing the temple, his disciples, if you remember, were reminded of Psalm 69.9. Psalm 69.9 that I read earlier says, the zeal for your house has consumed me. But here's what's interesting. That psalm, that verse doesn't end there. You know how the rest of Psalm 69.9 goes? It says, David writes, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me have fallen on me. See, friends, when we take communion, we remember the ultimate reason for why we can trust Jesus. It's because through his death in our place, our sin and the way that we reproach and offend God doesn't fall on us. It's fallen on him. See, his zeal for the Father's house and the Father's glory, it did consume him. See, he was willingly, he willingly gave his life to be destroyed, his body broken and his blood poured out so that by his grace and through his death and resurrection, we could be forgiven and brought near to God and so that his father could receive the glory that he is due. Jesus did this on our behalf. That's how much he loves us. That's why we can know that we know that we know that we can trust him. Friends, I'm going to give you a chance to reflect on that now. And as you do, I invite you to welcome Jesus' authority in your life and ask him to help you honor God with your body. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven.